Welcome to The Geek in Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Greg Lambert. Uh, Marlene Gaybauer is out this week, so once again, you are stuck with me as the solo host. But I think you'll enjoy our guest that we have on the show this week. So today, we are honored and delighted to have Kriti Sharma, Chief Product Officer of Legal Tech at Thomson Reuters, where she leads the development and delivery of innovative and impactful products that leverage data, analytics, and AI. She's also the founder of AI for Good, an organization that creates intelligent, ethical, and scalable technologies for social good. Kriti is a leading global voice on AI ethics and its impact on society and has advised governments, businesses, and international organizations on how to use AI responsibly and inclusively. And she's given a TED Talk on how to keep human bias out of AI and has been named in the Forbes 30 Under 30 for Advancement of AI. So, wow, that's a, that's a lot. Kriti, well, welcome to the Geek in Review. Hey, Greg, thank you so much for having me. And as a self-identified geek, I feel like I found my people. All right. I think we have a guest host in the making here, hopefully. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Kriti, we've worked uh, with a longtime friend of ours and actually our very first uh, person on the Geek and Review, uh, Zena Applebaum. And uh, we asked her to come back onto the show. And as much as she uh, wanted to, she said, you know, really, we should go and talk with someone from what she referred to as the trifecta of TR's legal team. <laughs> and, and so that was that was you as the, uh, the chief product officer, uh, Mike Dane, who a lot of people from the show should recognize, who's the head of Westlaw Product Management, or we should talk to Emily Colbert, who is head of product management for Practical Law. And so as we were talking, I mentioned to Zena that I love the fact that two of these three points in this trifecta are women. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. And actually, Zena said I should I should prod you on, on this as well. <laughs> How do you think this type of diversity in the leadership there at Thomson Reuters legal products affects you know, how the organization is run and how products are designed and maintained and, and enhanced? Yeah, so Greg, um, first of all, we really have an awesome trifecta with Mike, Emily, and myself, and then Zina and, and many other colleagues very closely working with us. I think what's really special about Thomson Reuters is the inclusivity and in not only our diversity of backgrounds, but also our experiences. We come from many different backgrounds. I myself have a computer science background. I started building robots when I was very young um, as a kid. We can talk about those robots another time. But now I'm just really passionate about solving real-world challenges that bring access to justice for all, um, bring a more, more of a technology-driven approach and AI background to this field. Mike and Emily have such incredible depth in understanding their product spaces, the world of legal, the practice of law. And it's just absolutely incredible to see those different experiences infused together. And the reason why it's so important, Greg, not just the diversity at a leadership level, but across the ranks, across the organization, because as we go into the world of AI, machines learn like humans do. And they're designed and they bring in uh, experiences and, and knowledge from the creators, from the underlying data sets. And if we are to build ethical, sustainable AI technology that we can trust, we got to have a diverse group of people building it. 
it has never been more important. We're very well aware of the challenges of biases in AI, the issues of sexism or racism and all these challenges that we hear about and observe and experience in our daily lives. Now, when it comes to the next wave of AI technologies, we have to do this right. And one of the key questions here is who creates this technology and is this group diverse enough in their backgrounds, in their knowledge and their experiences? Yeah, I, like I said, I was super impressed with the makeup of what Zena called the trifecta. So uh, thanks for talking about that. Now, I want to talk a little bit. I know there is just so much going on with legal technology and AI. And, you know, we, we've been talking since, you know, November of, of last year, you know, on how it can enhance content. And I know that Thomson Reuters has been working a lot on this as well, not just since November, but for, for many years. Now, I know there's a lot going on with, with the regulatory actions coming up with the potential acquisition of case text that was announced a few weeks ago. So we won't go into any specific questions about that because I know you've probably been told not to say certain things <laughs> about that, so we won't. But uh, with those disclaimers out of the way, I did want to ask, what is your perspective on TR's research and content advancing as all of these generative AI and whatever's next is coming along. What's the what's kind of the path that you think uh, TR wants to take? So Greg, at TR, we are very much at the forefront of applying AI into the most important tasks and jobs that our customers are doing. And our approach is very much of an augmentation of human work. We take a co-pilot approach rather than an autopilot. It's a companion that expands human skills and does the work for them and humans are always in control. And the reason why we went down this path is we deeply studied our customer needs, our advantage of where TR can bring um, real value to our customers. And we strongly believe that in our ability to ground or tame AI in trusted content, we can produce trusted answers. And so the biggest investment that TR is making, and you've heard about our $100 million per year commitment in the advancement of artificial intelligence, the biggest part of that $100 million is going into building trusted and responsible AI. And we don't think it's ever been more important to do this and to build this technology in the right way than today. Um, yeah. In, at this point in time, because um, AI is going to change in profound ways how we experience services, how we we live and work in, in our communities, and we want to make sure we do it the right way. Just expanding more on what that means in action is we are turning and bringing our content and research knowledge, which is trusted, it's well-recognized, we've spent, to your point, decades enhancing and perfecting our approach there, we're using that trusted data to train the AI model so they can give more clear answers. We can provide citations and links back to those trusted sources like Westlaw and Practicals Law. And most importantly, drive adoption and make it easy for people to use this technology by bringing it right where they work. So an example of this is our partnership that we announced with Microsoft co-pilot per word where right where you draft, we can help you get to a first draft within minutes by bringing in the most trusted answers 
and content using the power of Westlaw, Practical Law, and our document intelligence service. And that loops back to what makes AI really work at scale and production, and not just in the POC and pilot land, is building it in a trusted and responsible way. And that's what we're all in for. Yeah, I know that, you know, the, the trust issue is huge. Um, and in fact, I was uh, talking with a couple of friends of mine yesterday about, first we started talking about the Goldman Sachs uh, report that suggested that, you know, up to 44% of lawyers' work could be replaced by AI tools. And then, you know, and we were going back and forth and I, I, and I mentioned, I said, look, you know, we, that trust that you talked about, I think people are suddenly feeling the lack of trust with the tools that are out there on the, on the commercial market. And, you know, this has been driving most yeah. of our general counsels and our security teams to just talk about the risk side of using generative AI for legal practice. And not only that, but then the uncertainty of whether data that is put into the AI tools by attorneys is really secure and maintains the confidentiality of the, of the client and of, of the law firm. As we were talking, I was feeling like one there's still a huge gap of legal professionals that have even used generative AI tools so far. And then there's also the kind of this pushback. So are you seeing any type of, you know, kind of pushback? Let's, let's slow this down and maybe just be temporary, but, but are you seeing kind of a, a cooling in the market when it comes to using AI tools in, in the legal practice? So, Greg, what we are seeing is instead of cooling down around AI, we are seeing more of a speed up towards thoughtfully created AI. Mm. And that's that's an important nuance, if you allow me to expand a bit. Sure. Yeah, we went through this phase in Q1 and everybody was excited and enthused by more commercially consumer-facing, commercially available tools like ChatGPT being one of those prime examples of a foundation model that made the interface so easy that anyone could start using it and experiencing the power of these models. But when you got past that and realized, oh, okay, there are all these challenges with this technology and you can't use it for every every use case. And so that was the reality hitting moment, right? I think of it as chatting was so Q1, Q2 and Q3 is all about, now let's make it real and make it right. work for us. And that's where we see much stronger drive and enthusiasm and interest from our customers and our partners really want to benefit from this technology and they want to adopt it, but they want to do it safely, responsibly, and thoughtfully. And that's the big difference. And it's not new. I've worked in AI for a very long time in many different industries. I'm newer to legal. I came to Thomson Reuters in the legal world just over 18 months ago, but I've spent very long time in uh, in my career working across various applications of um, in finance and in small businesses and health tech and social justice. And it is um, always the crux comes down to can humans trust this technology? Is it designed in a way where it doesn't black box information? It starts to white box it? Could it give you, could it show its workings? Could it show you where it learned information from? Can you go back to a trusted source to explore more? What's the impact on humans? Can it get started easily and, and, and get going? And is there a real benefit to be generated by applications of this technology as it being true to its capabilities? And can it 
does it know its limitations? And that responsibility of clarifying these questions, it very much means on the developers or the creators of that technology, such as ourselves, and also our customers and partners who are really joining us in driving that change process across the board. Yeah, I, I remember going to Mike Dane's uh, presentation, I think it was for Westlaw Next, and he was talking about how they were implementing what would have been AI at the, at the time, and that was that the system was supposed to learn as people were using it, you know, and how to react to certain mm -hmm. things, what should drift up to the top. And I remember people being worried about that probably, you know, eight, eight years ago. So, and I know that's you know, just exponentially shot up uh, since then. But I think you know a lot of us in the industry are really looking toward the big players like like Thomson Reuters to bring us something to use that we do feel confident in. So, yeah. And Craig, I would just add that we take that responsibility extremely seriously. We know that given our scale and the quality of the content. There is a responsibility for us to bring a solution to a market that sets the gold standard, sets the tone of building and deploying quality AI solutions. And I've been just so in impressed and inspired by the, the partnership from our customers, by our teams who are really at the forefront of building this technology in a trusted, responsible way. So you were on a terrific panel in June sponsored by tech.eu on charting a way forward for ethical AI, balancing innovation and responsibility. And in one topic you mentioned was that there is a significant lack of regulation around AI and that you were really disappointed by that. So are there any specific regulations that you would like to see the EU, the US, or, or others implement that would help kind of set the trust for the technologies going forward? Yeah, that's a great question, Greg, and one that I'm very passionate about. I, I could tell from your panel that you were passionate <laughs> about it. <laughs> yeah, I think at one point I did say, I'm deeply, deeply, deeply disappointed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I left out a couple of the deeplies on, on this. <laughs> yeah, I did have to tone down 10 other deeplies. But um, um, I, I, I just think, Greg, the, the future of this, how this technology is deployed, the scale at which should not be left to individuals or geeks like me to figure out. At Thomson Reuters, for example, we've we've obviously established our AI policy and our standards and our governance and our principles and how we are going to create trusted, responsible, ethical AI. But the true adoption of this technology for benefit of humanity and society and business is going to come from specific rules and guardrails that have to be put in place across all producers and creators of this technology, not just the ones who opt in to do this right. And this is where the regulatory frameworks are very, very important. Um, if we have to give people confidence that they can feel safe in using this technology for more positive outcomes. What we are seeing in the regulatory space, and I've spent a lot of time going through the EU AI Act, for example, is um, that the regulators are taking uh, to somewhat divergent opinions or approaches to this technology. For example, in the EU, the draft EU AI Act is taking a risk-based approach. So there are some applications that are outright banned. 
others that are considered high risk, some are medium and others are low risk. And that comes as a framework. So there are applications of AI that we shouldn't be deploying in society because it is unacceptable, for example, large-scale surveillance and, and so on. Um, and yep. then there are others, for example, in the legal and information world where we can use trusted data and ground AI in facts, we can really create access to justice at a much bigger scale. And so the thoughtful approach around creating a tiered and risk-based model is a great step forward. The UK has taken a different approach to the EU in that they are going, they've historically taken more of a lightweight, light touch approach to regulation, relying on existing regulators to, to figure it out. And the US is in somewhat earlier stages. What we really need at a very fast pace is global coordination around regulation for AI. When we build in an increasingly global and digital world, when we build tools and solutions for people around the world, we need that coordination so we can drive adoption um, in the right way and in this in a safe way. And that is my big call and ask for help and call for action for policymakers, business leaders to really lean in and get our point of view and our needs across through coordination between industry and policymakers and civil society. Yeah, I think you're right. It has to be a global approach. I don't know how practical that's going to be, given the, the current political uh, climate. I think this is going to be a almost an AI arms race. Do you see that for countries that, that are going to look for ways to give themselves an advantage and dis, disadvantage other countries? I think, Craig, from what I have seen for a very long time in the AI space is that this there's a very polarized tech community. There's a group of people, thinkers of our times, who believe the existential risk is far greater, the longer term risk, and, and yeah, they would put, put out us to slow down or pause, you know. And then there's the other community of people and builders who are more concerned about making sure that we use this technology for the right applications and we build it the right way. It's more near term needs around eliminating bias from systems, creating more accurate AI that can help you be more effective in your work. And that world has been in, uh, that, that, that space has been across this um, spectrum for a while. And what I'm hoping we'll get to, and we are getting a lot closer to it, is meeting in the middle of, let's make sure the technology we're building today is trusted, responsible, so we can really get the benefits out of it. And let's start to work through regulatory frameworks that help us in the long term and identify applications where we shouldn't use this technology and we should use it more in others. This is a technology like any other technology. It's more about what yeah. humans do with it. <laughs> I think I'm going to use that quote at some point. Okay. So. <laughs> now, you know, we've been talking about the development of, and the tools and the things that are available and the, and the trust issue. But, you know, this is going to be a, a huge shift and how, I'll just limit it to the legal profession, but, you know, how legal professionals do their day-in, day-out job. You know, what kind of skills, development, and talent do you think we're going to need going forward as the nature of work changes? Yeah, Greg, this is such an exciting time for people to come and build products. Um, <laughs> and and I do believe it firmly. You know, um, I went down this traditional path of in my career of building technology since I was a kid, and then going to engineering school and then computer science and 
that part to really get to grips around how to build AI systems at scale and build large-scale technology platforms. That game has changed. Now we're moving past the teaching everyone to code movement, you know, that, that kind of obsession we had. A three-year-old must know how to write code. Um, <laughs> we've moved past that to this new world where AI can do that, do a lot of that work of processing information, of writing code even, you know, which is the most expensive form of knowledge work that we created. We're now moving to this world where human role is to ask the right questions to get the right response back from the machines. It's about curiosity, it's emotional intelligence and empathy. Those human skills have never been more relevant and important than it is before. So, and yeah, there's a, a very famous quote going around in the tech circles right now that the newest programming language is human language. So it's uh, too bad for me. I only speak two yeah. human languages, Greg. I speak 17 computer languages. So ah. I'm going to go retrain. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is such an exciting time. That barrier of getting into the world of technology or building a career there or creating new solutions and tools and products has gone down significantly. And I can't wait to see a much broader group of people with many different experiences coming into this field. A few years ago, as I was building an AI product at, at the time, which was similar um, large language model conversational system, we hired the first AI personality trainer slash conversation designer. And at the time, the yeah, that, that role was about help the machines learn how to talk to humans. So it's the tone of voice, how to interpret their needs and um, how to be transparent and, you know, for example, declare that you're talking to a machine and not a human and what the limitations are. And that was the most important, most impactful role that we had in the team. And that person had no background in tech, but they were excellent at language and communication. So mm, who would have I think we're about to see that. Yeah, I think we're about to see that come in spades. And I, the technologists of the future is going to look different. They're going to come from many different backgrounds. And I think going back to your diversity point in your first question, this is how we're going to solve it. I really, I really hope that this is this is how we solve some of the diversity gaps or challenges we see. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought about that about having to train the, the personality of the AI, especially an interactive AI that you have because um, I'm a solid Gen X person and I fit that stereotype of if you have to do more than two emails, pick up the phone because you're obviously talking past each other, not to each other. So mm -hmm. I, I imagine that, you know, it's the same way with the machine. And, and I will talk a little bit about this later, but I, I was watching a video on one of the products that you helped develop, Rainbow, which clearly states you you are talking to a machine, and but it it still allows people to do that interaction. And I think having that knowledge up front helps set the tone and confidence of the of the conversation going forward. So, like I said, emotional intelligence, uh, human interaction are going to be more important now than probably ever. Yeah, absolutely, and. Greg, the example you mentioned of Rainbow, we launched this tool in uh, prior to my uh, Thomson Reuters life to help people in vulnerable conditions get access to, to help that they need. So in, in this case, Rainbow specifically targets people who are at risk of, um, of violence, domestic violence or gender-based violence. And it is often a very difficult circumstance. Taking the first step feels hard. There's judgment, shame, stigma 
issues or challenges around getting access to services that often only work Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And what we found is by building a tool that's not there to solve the problem, but provide information to help make taking that first step a bit easier was the purpose and was designed to be, it is designed to be transparent and clear that they're talking to a machine what its limitations are. And when we did that and we were clear about the human and machine roles and hierarchy of that relationship, we were able to impact and positively and augment some of those uh, those needs in a very difficult situation. Well, since we brought up Rainbow, let me just jump into the conversation about AI for good. So you, you're not new at all to the AI discussion. So you were inspired by your experience with the Obama Foundation Summit all the way back in 2017 to start an organization called AI for Good. What happened at that summit that drove your desire to start AI for Good? And you know what was the problem that you wanted the organization to solve? Yeah, it's a great. It started from this realization that we are, we have such a profound and powerful technology in our lives and, and that is available to us. And I just did not want to look back in time a few years from now and think, oh, the best thing we did with this tech is make people click more ads or <laughs> we, we get them hooked to their phones. Yeah. And it was this, this uh, at the same time, you know, we we're seeing huge needs from frontline organizations who were solving. So the hardest problems that our society and communities face, we didn't have all the resources to scale. And so it originated and grew into a movement. Um, and now we've evolved it even to the next stage of AI for good as a movement and not just an organization. So whether you're a business, you are a nonprofit, you are an individual, you can start to build applications of AI in a safe, responsible way that address some of those bigger challenges or at least augment them. And um, yeah, I, I have to admit, candidly, it is the most rewarding and the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life to take, to work on challenges of mental health and loneliness and violence into um, in, in a topics that I don't know very much about but using it as an opportunity to work with people who are so experienced in that world, in that field, who have so much to offer and just could benefit from technology supporting those needs. And I would say it's been very humbling. Yeah. Can you tell the audience a little bit more about what AI for Good does and kind mm -hmm. of what, what you see it doing over the next few years? Yeah. So um, AI for Good builds products, um, solutions, and experiences for some of the biggest social challenges that face our world, uh, our communities. So we, we've done a lot of work on um, supporting frontline organizations who address, who provide services to people at risk of violence. We um, are deeply passionate about extending that to enabling access to justice, which very much aligns with my work at Thomson Reuters in the legal world. We do a lot of work on enabling and democratizing access to trusted information in, in the mental health space for young people. Our focus has been historically been primarily in developing countries in South Africa and India. What we've seen over the last few years in particular, Greg, is this 
shift to a movement in that there are AI technologists, researchers, um, civil society members, um, business people. It's such a strong movement where people are very curious to learn how they can contribute or how they can use AI in a meaningful way. And our hope and dream is we'll stop the conversation about AI over time and we will all be talking about positive impact that we can create and solve sustainable development goals related problems that we can solve. Um, and so ideal success would be, it would be more about good and less about AI. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion on the potential for the new AI technologies to help you know, underserved populations gain access to their legal services or health mm -hmm. services. And I know you're doing great work with AI for good, but how do you see big, bigger companies like Thomson Reuters and others taking this potential of access to justice, access to healthcare, and turning that into actual services that deliver to the community rather than just solely focusing in on um, how do I get more people to go, go use Westlaw? Yeah, <laughs> I think we definitely will, will see more people using Westlaw because it becomes a lot easier to use it to do your work. Yes. Um, I, I think the potential of AI is, is across multiple domains, right? It's about in your professional work, getting your work done faster and, and more effectively and more efficiently and with greater confidence. So that's the work you're seeing Thomson Reuters produce in the legal professional space with faster access to research and answers to questions and expertise in drafting. Then there is the opportunity of changing how and improving how our court systems work, for example, by giving them access to the same trusted information, by making them more effective, giving them digital tools, um, and that we do a lot of that work through our court products like Case Center. And then increasingly, a big responsibility incumbent upon all of us is to then make this information more easily available to a broader community of of people. And you know, for example, in the US, Thomson Reuters is the service called Find Law, where we have over 100 million visitors who come to our site to understand their legal information, rights, and connect to a trusted attorney. And you know, we will see more and more of that support grow towards large communities of people around the world. What I think is the real opportunity with AI is how we can solve the unsolved or the underserved problems. Legal is definitely one of those worlds where there is such a big opportunity to do do more. And there are passionate people who want to solve this problem that there is an underserved community. I really, really hope that with these advancements in AI, with the productivity improvements, with the augmentation of human skills, we can bring quality legal services to more people. Tying into that, I know, you know, the question was around the potential for access to justice, access to healthcare, but part of that requires kind of a better understanding of the technology, what it can do, and experimenting with AIs, you know, AI tools to help governments or companies better understand the technology so that they can turn around and hopefully kind of fill these needs. So do you think that having things like a, you know a regulatory sandbox or experimental zones or experimentation zones could be an effective approach to to how we can learn what the tools can do. Um, for sure, I you know we've seen this successfully deployed in the fintech world before, right? When 
there was more collaboration between industry to strike the right balance between innovation and regulation. We also have a gap in availability of talent and skills to work with and for regulators to start and solve some of these questions and problems. We know how critical the skill set is and how scarce it can be at times in, in our world. So absolutely, I, I definitely think more collaboration between industry and government and policymakers. And I'll pitch my dream again, Greg, of more international alignment. Yes. <laughs> so I'm not deeply, deeply, deeply disappointed. <laughs> we really hope to see more of that coordination. And um, we all need to get out of our comfort zones and do more of it. And it's incumbent upon it, upon all of us to get this right. At Thomson Reuters, we are taking a leading position in the thought leadership around this space and leading the conversation with our many different stakeholders in this space to really champion the needs of our customers to the best of our abilities. Kriti, we're at the point of the show where we ask everyone our crystal ball question. So I'm going to ask you, uh, I know you're a, you're in a hotel room, so hopefully you've packed your crystal ball with you. But if not, just uh, you know, think, think out and look into the future for us and let us know, what do you think are going to be some of the biggest challenges or changes in the legal industry? And I always say over the next two to five years, maybe that's a little too far out, but uh, you know, over the, the near term and, and longer term, what do, you, what do you see as the challenges? Since you said challenges and changes, mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about three things that I deeply care about. I think is the most important. It's a helpful framework to think about AI. First thing is we got to be very intentional about who creates AI. And by that, I mean people from many different backgrounds who have a good mix of skill set, who are diverse in their opinions, their experiences, um, and their knowledge. Yeah, I think it would be a real sad state if it's only geeks like, my, like, like me who create this technology, but it needs to be a broader group of people from expertise, particularly in the legal world, who understand this, who, are, who really know that. And that should reflect in the data and the content that's fed into these AI systems. That content is, needs to be trusted. Second is how we build it. It's one thing to just create a POC or a quick wrapper on top of GPT-4 and check it out, or and quite another to build it thoughtfully to understand customer needs that, that really need to be solved, the right problems that, that need to be addressed, and um, create the transparency and trusted link backs or citations back into the information so you can use it strongly. And then the third one, Perhaps the most important one, Greg, is what do we use it for? Because I go back to my point, we can build this technology to make people click more ads, or we could use this to meaningfully, in a significant way, drive productivity enhancements, give people time back, or create easier access to systems or information, or make it easier to enter into this profession and create more impact in a much more positive way. So my crystal ball would be that we will know the answers to the questions of who creates it, how do they build it safely, and what do they build it for? All right. Well, Kriti Sharma, Chief Product Officer of Legal Tech there at Thomson Reuters. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Greg. And of course, thanks to everyone listening for taking the time to, to listen to the Geek & Review podcast. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please share it with a colleague. We'd love to hear from you. So you can also reach out to us on social media. 
Marlene can be found at GayBauerM on Twitter. I can be reached at Glambert on Twitter, and I'm now on Thread, so uh, Glambert Pod. Uh, so I had to add the pod there to the end of it. And not only that, but now the podcast has a Thread account, which is uh, at the Geek and Review. Critty, if uh, someone wanted to find out more and or can continue the conversation, where's a good place that they could find you online? They can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Kriti Sharma or on Twitter at Sharma underscore Kriti. So listeners, you can also leave us a, an, an old-fashioned voicemail on our Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7821. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSica, who actually has a new album out, so go check that out. All right, thanks everyone. Thanks everyone.